going to welcome Adrian up on the stage in just a moment. Um, Adrian has, is a friend of this church. He's spoken here before. Just give me a little wave if you've heard Adrian before. Great. So loads of you haven't, which is a real treat for you. Um, Adrian leads a church uh, in, in Camberley called the Beacon Church, and he is, uh, as I say, uh, a friend of this church. Has spoken at conferences and New Day. If any of you've been to New Day before, Adrian's a regular there. So we give him a warm welcome. He's going to uh, speak to us this morning. Much. Great. Well, thank you, Tim, and good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, be with you guys. And just to introduce myself to those of you. I don't know. Uh, I thought I'd begin uh, by sharing with you the amusing story of how I got involved, how I got engaged to Julia. This is a picture of my wife and kids, who is now uh, the mother of our four girls. Now, the background to this story is that I really liked Julia, but I was absolutely convinced that she would not like me for one very good reason. I thought that she was too good-looking for me. <laughs> Thank you for that R. <laughs> this was a fact, a fact that was confirmed to me by all of my friends. But nevertheless, one time when we were uh, sitting around, it's a group of us friends, and we're sitting around in a room, and actually I was sitting next to Julia on a sofa, and I noticed that her knee was touching mine. <laughs> but at the time, I dismissed this as purely accidental knee contact, the sort of entirely accidental knee contact that presumably can happen when a girl finds herself sitting next to some bloke who she doesn't fancy at all. So I thought, any second now, Julia will realize that her knee is touching mine, and she will withdraw her knee. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you that five seconds passed, <laughs> and no such knee withdrawal took place. So I thought, well, maybe the sofa is so small that Julia has been squashed, forced into sustained knee contact against her will. But now I looked around, the sofa was plenty big enough. So I thought, well, maybe she's got one of those medical conditions. <laughs> you know, when you can't feel things. Maybe she's had a nerve cut in her right knee. Maybe she has paralysis of the right knee. But no, Julia showed none of the telltale signs of right knee paralysis. <laughs> so I decided that if her knee was still touching mine in an additional 10 seconds time, I would take that as official confirmation that she was interested in me. 10 seconds later, her knee was still touching mine and I realized that I had received a signal. <laughs> yeah, even though I am a bloke, I was able to work this out. <laughs> and so it was. And here, actually, I'll, I'll skip a whole year of the story just to speed things up a bit. Um, more than a year later, folks, I was ready to propose marriage to Julia. And so it was that one night, 
I hid in the bushes, <laughs> planning my first burglary. My mission was to break into Julia's parents' house and steal her passport because my plan was to whisk her away to Paris because I thought to myself, if I ask her to marry me in Paris, if I can up the romance level high enough that when I ask her, she might say yes in a sort of disorientated daze, <laughs> brought on by the excitement of the Eurostar. <laughs> and so I broke into her parents' house, I stole her passport, and in Paris, in a restaurant called La Table d'Hôte, du Palais Royal, which sent me back a bit. I got down on one knee, I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And that was, that was an electric feeling. And you know, I, I think I can say honestly, I've only ever had that same electric feeling on one other occasion in my life. And that was on the day when I began a relationship with God. And the Bible says that through Christ, it's now possible for each and every single one of us here this morning to enjoy for ourselves a relationship with God. But I didn't used to believe that. In fact, I had never even heard anyone talk about having a relationship with God. So for the next few minutes, let's look at what happened when Jesus met someone who had spent years chasing happiness, but it seems like she had almost given up hope of ever finding it. By speaking to a Samaritan, Jesus ignores a wall of hatred that had divided Jews from Samaritans for 400 years. By speaking to a woman, as a Jewish man, Jesus cuts right through Middle Eastern social protocol. So she's surprised. Jesus has crossed a racial divide. Jesus has crossed a religious divide. Jesus has just crossed a gender divide to show this woman radical acceptance. And Jesus was always getting into trouble for doing this sort of thing. You see, he doesn't mind what class you are. He doesn't mind what race you are. Jesus was always going to the parties of the wrong people. And as we'll see later, this woman was also considered in her culture to be a kind of a moral outsider. So she was being shunned by her own community, which is probably why she was going to draw water on her own at a time of day when there wouldn't be anybody around to criticize her. And it is typical of Jesus that here he deliberately goes out of his way to show love to someone who may have thought that they weren't good enough for God. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Dragon's Den. Did you ever watch Dragon's Den? Uh, just in case there is somebody here who is unfamiliar with the format of the TV show Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den, there are five mega rich investors. These are the dragons, yeah? And they lounge in their low-slung chairs. And they are so rich that they actually leave wads of their cash on little tables so that we can see how, how rich they are. And then the format of the show is that a, uh, an entrepreneur, somebody with a business idea, they kind of come into the dragon's den and they pitch their idea to the dragons. But sadly, what often happens on Dragon's Den 
is that the dragons decide not to invest in this person, not to back this person, and they usually sum up why. And they finish their withering analysis usually by saying, and for that reason, I'm out. And then the next dragon will say, yeah, you're a nice enough guy, but I just don't think you've got what it takes. And so for that reason, I'm out. And the next dragon will say, yeah, I mean, you seem like a nice bloke, but to be honest, I don't think you've got that kind of the eye of the tiger, so I'm afraid your sums don't add up, and so for that reason, I'm out. And it's almost as if Jesus meets this woman and says, do you know what? For the very reason that everyone else in this town has said, you're out, Jesus says, for that reason, I'm in. Jesus is saying, for the very reason that everyone in this town seems to have rejected you, for that reason, Jesus says, I accept you. I'm in. And Jesus comes along to you this morning and says to you what he says to this woman. I'm interested in you. I'm going to stop and talk to you. This morning, Jesus is in. Now, this woman, she didn't go to the well in order to meet Jesus. No, she had absolutely no idea that Jesus was going to be there. And she had absolutely no idea who Jesus was. In the same way, I wasn't looking to meet Jesus. I wasn't on a spiritual search. I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. But then what happened to me was I met quite a large group of Christians who seemed to have a sense of peace that was not dependent upon their circumstances. Now, why was that appealing to me? Was it perhaps because I was unhappy at the time? Well, no, looking back, I was very happy at the time. Like me, this woman wasn't looking for Jesus, but... Jesus came into her life unexpectedly and unannounced. And Jesus simply values her as a woman. He simply loves her as a woman who has been made in the image of God. We ask, does Jesus value me? And his answer is yes. And it's not a case of mistaken identity. Maybe on this point I can just tell you a funny story about something that happened to me one time uh, when I was driving my car uh, late at night uh, in a place called Crawley in West Sussex. As I was driving along in my car late at night, I I saw suddenly flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror. I am being pulled over by the police. Now, normally, folks, when this happens to me, I I have to confess this has happened to me a number of times, um, (laughs) Normally, when this happens to me, I immediately feel guilty because, you see, I already know what it is that I've done wrong. But on this particular occasion, I could not think of anything that I had done wrong. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe the policeman's just bored or maybe he wants to congratulate me on my driving. (laughs) And so I, I was feeling really pretty confident as I wound down my window And he comes over and he says, "Um, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. He says, were you aware 
that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turn right at the previous junction? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I hadn't realised that early indication <laughs> was an offence. He says, step out of the car, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? And I say, oh, that is a really good question. When was the last time? I said, um, 1986. <laughs> he said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your answers to my questions are a bit slow. <laughs> I said, look, I I'm just a slow kind of bloke. I'm just not the brightest. Anyway, I, I, I blow into this breathalyzer kit and I hand it to him and he's sort of waiting for the result and he's looking at the result and I say to him, it's negative, isn't it? He said, yes, sir, it is negative. It must be broken. <laughs> he said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually he let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before junctions. But throughout that whole conversation, I just had this feeling that he was kind of expecting me to be somebody else. I had this kind of feeling that maybe it was like a case of mistaken identity. You know the most amazing thing about you? And the most amazing thing about me is that this is not a case of mistaken identity, that God actually knows all the best that there is to know about me. God already knows all the worst that there is to know about me. God knows all the best that there is to know about you. God already knows all the worst that there is to know about you, and he's in. And as we're about to see, Jesus already knows all that there is to know about this Samaritan woman. This is not a case of mistaken identity. Jesus wants you. He's for you. He's not against you. And he's drawing you to himself, a bit like this woman is being drawn to Christ. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He means that until we come to him, until we come to Jesus, we will never be completely satisfied. We'll always have this faint sense of chasing, striving, longing, looking forward to the next thing. And folks, what's brilliant about this woman is that by the end of our story, she realizes that the reason why she's still thirsty, the reason why she's still not satisfied is because she's separated from God. You see, Jesus is offering us something this morning that's so much better than well water. Is there more to life than this? Jesus' answer is a massive yes. In fact, it turns out that you and I have been too easily pleased. It turns out that God is more committed to our happiness than we are. So Jesus says here, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, hey, if you knew that we're in the Bible, 
if you knew that right now eternal life is being offered to you personally by the Son of God, if you knew that right now, you'd say, oh, wow, <laughs> Jesus, we're in the Bible. This is amazing. Um, can I have your eternal life, please, Jesus? And Jesus would say, well, well, yes, absolutely. That's why I've come to the planet. But Jesus offers her eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So Jesus suddenly changes the subject and gets personal. He says, go, call your husband. Now, why say that? Why change the subject? Folks, he didn't. Jesus didn't change the subject. He's staying on exactly the same subject. She's been saying, no, 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 I'm not spiritually thirsty, she's been saying. That's not my deal. And Jesus is hinting, yeah, you don't think that you're spiritually thirsty, but actually, you deeply thirst for acceptance. You thirst for significance. You thirst for God. It's just that you don't recognize your thirst for what it actually is because you've been drinking at the fountain of uh, male approval. And now the point is, you're fed up with it, aren't you? Because each time you got married, you thought, oh, wow, this new bloke, this new bloke's going to make me happy. But each time you've been disappointed. And Jesus is saying, after five disappointments, you've lost your spark. Can I ask you this morning, somewhere along the road of life, did you lose your spark? Jesus is hinting to this woman that the light that once burned bright in you has now become dimmed by bitter experience. Jesus is hinting, these husbands, they've been like pseudo-saviors for you, but they didn't deliver, they didn't last, they didn't even stay, and this latest bloke, the guy that you're with at the moment, what do we know about him? He makes you come out and haul water for him in the heat of the day. He's the false master too. And in just the same way, somebody could be sitting in one of these lovely padded seats this morning here thinking, yeah, I mean, I wish I could have faith. But you don't have to create faith. You have already got more than enough faith. All we have to do is transfer our faith from where it currently is to Christ. You have already got more than enough faith. All you and I need to do is to transfer our hopes from where they currently are to Christ. Because there's already some place that we're going, some place that you and I, we're drinking deep, we're going there for that spiritual deep love. I mean, we're all human. Okay, maybe in her case it happens to be these five men. But in our case it could be, I don't know what it is. It could be our home. It could be our appearance. It could be our status. It could be a job. For us, our life could be tied up with being accepted by that particular group of people. 
But the good news is Jesus comes to you this morning and says, I've got living water. Drink from me. Jesus says, if you come to me, Jesus says, you will never thirst again. Wow. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Wow. I mean, this is a huge moment. Hey, the way that Jesus very gently helps this woman is so impressive. First, he shows us where we've currently got our hopes. He shows us who our pseudo-saviors and false masters currently are. And then finally, he can say, here's the living water. I'm the Jewish Messiah. I'm the one. I'm the one who 322 Old Testament prophecies, all of which were all written down 400 years before I was even born. I'm going to fulfill all 320 of them. I'm him. I'm the Jewish Messiah. I'm the one. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You see, now she's free. Now you can't hold her down. She's bouncing around the town. She's found a new source and a new joy. She's experienced radical acceptance. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So what makes Jesus the Savior of the world? Of the world. Well, he's the savior of the world because he saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our pseudo saviors and our false masters. He saves us from our tendency to make idols out of people and things. He saves us from the places where we've currently got our hopes, the times when we put other things first ahead of God. And of course, he went on to become the savior of the world ultimately when he died on the cross. Now, hang on. Why is that considered to be such a big deal? Well, maybe I can get into this by just telling you about a funny thing that happened on my very first day ever working as a Christian minister. And so I was employed by a church. This is my first day on the job. And they sent me I ended up in this hilarious debate because they sent me to a a very posh, plush, uh, private fee-paying school in Surrey, and they sent me there to take a double period of A-level general studies. So I arrive in this room, and there are 17 very bright 17-year-old boys sitting there in a sort of horseshoe, and believe it or not, they were actually discussing this subject as I walked in. And so I said to them, I asked them a question. 
I said, in your opinion, I said, are there any sins, are there any crimes that are so serious that those people who commit that sin or that crime should never get to go to heaven when they die? Oh, yeah, they said, oh, yeah. I said, like, what? They said, well, like, murder. They said, murderers, murderers should never get to go to heaven when they die. I said, oh, oh, right, uh, okay. I said, um, what about down the other end of the spectrum? I said, are there any sins, are there any crimes that really will turn out to be no big deal? I mean, these are sins that God will kind of just sort of brush under the carpet. They said, oh, yeah. They said, oh, yeah. I said, like, what? They said, well, like, like mild, mild shoplifting. I said, what, as opposed to sort of like hardcore habitual shoplifting? They said, they said yeah, mild shoplifting. God's not too fussed about mild shoplifting. I said, all right. I said, uh, are there any other sins that God's not too fussed about? They said, oh, yeah. They said, oh, yeah. I said, like, what? They said, like, lying. God's not too fussed about lying. I said, guys, we are really making some progress. Because in the first five minutes of our A-level general studies, you have established that at one end of the spectrum, murderers should never get to go to heaven when they die. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have established that mild shoplifting and lying are okay. I said, guys, somewhere between these two extremes, there must be a cut-off point sin, whereby you can mild shoplift all you want down this end of the spectrum. <laughs> but the moment... You commit this cut-off point sin. <gasps> you don't get to go to heaven when you die. I said, guys, what is that cut-off point sin? And one boy rose to his feet. And I said, what is that cut-off point sin? And he said, serious fraud. I'll never forget the way he said it. Serious fraud. And of course, just like then, in the classroom, we all burst out laughing. And we burst out laughing in the classroom because in that moment, we realized how ridiculous we were being as we in our wisdom, as we decided what God's cutoff point should be, we realized we would probably need God to tell us what God's cutoff point is. And actually, in the Bible, God has told us what his cutoff point is. In the Bible, he says that actually all of us have sinned. And that all of us fall short of the glory of God that we're all cut off. Speaking personally, there are loads of times when either in terms of my thoughts or my words or my deeds. I mean, the God who really exists, that God knows everything about me. All the times when I actually knew what the right thing to do was, but I didn't do it. All the times when I've taken the gifts of food, fun, friends, falling in love. And I've just kind of eased God, the gift giver, to the margins of my life. Uh, times when I've just taken the gift of life for granted. And the Bible says the result of sin is death. Hey, I'm not perfect enough for a perfect heaven. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, it says about heaven that nothing impure will ever enter it. So I can't go to heaven when I die because I would pollute a perfect heaven. It wouldn't be perfect anymore. So I can't have eternal life. I'm facing eternal death. The Bible says that the wages of sin or the penalty for sin is death. But it is very hard to imagine 
facing the death penalty. They do have the death penalty in some countries. In fact, they even have it in some states in the USA. So let's imagine, for example, just for the sake of the illustration, let's imagine that I committed a crime in Florida for which I'm liable or likely to get the penalty of death by lethal injection. Now, folks, I would like to think that I wouldn't commit a crime in Florida for which I would get the penalty of death by lethal injection. Just imagine that I did for the sake of the illustration. Well, hey, what would happen to me? Well, I would be arrested and I would be kept until the day of my trial. Then eventually, I don't know, a year later, I finally get my day in court. So they put me in an orange jumpsuit and they shackle my ankles, they handcuff my wrists, and I'm led to the courtroom. And let's imagine that, in my case, the evidence is overwhelming, that I'm guilty. All that remains, the verdict has come back that I'm guilty, all that remains is for the judge to pass sentence, the sentence of death by lethal injection. So that's all that's left. And so I'm waiting for the, the hammer to fall. And then let's imagine, just at that moment, before sentence is passed, there's a commotion at the back of the courtroom. Let's imagine it's a room a bit like this. Somebody pushes in through that door, past the guards, causing a disturbance, but rather than the judge stopping the trial... Let's imagine that he allows the disturbance to continue and this stranger comes all the way up to the dock where I'm standing and then let's imagine that this stranger pushes me out of the way so I'm no longer standing in the dock. I'm now down on the courtroom floor. I'm now watching proceedings and this stranger is standing in my place. Now let's imagine, well, how would you feel if you were in this situation? How would you feel standing on the courtroom floor? How would you feel as the judge proceeds to pass the sentence of death upon the stranger rather than on you? Well, there are gasps. Gasps from your relatives who are watching the case in the gallery. Gasps from the media who are reporting the case. The judge bangs his gavel on the desk. Clerk of court says, all rise. Everybody stands up. The judge walks out. It's over. What, what's going on? And so you're standing there, and then sure enough, the guards come to you, and they take the handcuffs off your wrists. They unshackle your ankles. They take the jumpsuit off you. They put the jumpsuit on the stranger. They shackle his ankles. They handcuff his wrists. And they lead him off to the wagon, to death row. And you're left standing there, and the, the stranger passes you, and you grab his arm. And you say, look, look, hang on, I've got to stop you. I've got to ask you why. I mean, why on earth would you choose to go to death by lethal injection? I, I don't even know you. Why would you give up your life for me? Why are you doing this for me? What, what's in it for you, you ask? And imagine if this stranger just says back to you, well, you see, it's like this. I really do love you. And you think, what? What sort of cheese is that? Is this Hollywood? Who says that? I really do love you? What? I mean, the whole thing just sounds too good to be true. But sure enough, this guy's led away. He gets to the van. Off he goes to death row. And nobody seems to be hassling you. And you think, well, maybe it's like a, a TV 
game show or reality show that everybody else knows, that everybody else is in on it except me, maybe that's it. I mean, the whole thing's too good to be true, it seems. And so you wander out to the foyer of the courtroom. But as soon as you push through the doors, there's all this press and radio and TV and newspapers. They all want a piece of you. But imagine if one of these reporters says, well, that stranger, the bloke who just swapped with you, the bloke who just went off to death row in your place, I recognized him as soon as he walked in. I went to school with him. Can I tell you something about him that I think will interest you? That stranger who just swapped with you, that's the judge's son. It's the judge's one and only son. Well, now you're in awe of the judge. A few moments later, the judge leaves his chambers. He's just crossing the foyer. He's just going to his car at the end of his working day. So you grab his arm. And you say, Your Honor, I've got to stop you, Your Honor. Why on earth? Your Honor, why would you allow your one and only son to go to death by lethal injection just so that I can be free? I don't even know you. Why are you doing this to me? What's in it for you, you asked. And imagine if the judge says back to you, well, you see, it's like this. I really do love you. And still, the whole thing seems too good to be true. You find a side door and you escape from the press. You get out of the courthouse and you start to walk along the street. All this time thinking, any minute now I'm going to be rearrested. The game's going to be up. You walk and walk and walk, and eventually a car pulls up in front of you. It's got black-tinted windows. The, the windows were down. The door swings open, and out the back of this car steps the judge. And you say to yourself, I knew it. I knew it was too good to be true. He's going to come and rearrest me. But imagine if this judge just comes up to you, and rather than arresting you, he just gives you a massive hug. And in that hug, the penny drops. That as far as the powers that be are concerned, your crime is now dealt with and you really are free. Folks, something like that was happening on a hill outside Jerusalem in around 33 A.D., When God the Father, God the Judge, looked down upon his one and only Son, Jesus, and allowed Jesus to die, not by lethal injection, but by crucifixion. Somehow, when Jesus died on the cross, God treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe so that you can go free, so that I can go free. Jesus took the rap for it instead of you, instead of me, so that you could be forgiven, so that I could be forgiven, so that you could come into a relationship with God, so that you could have that hug. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. I want to finish this morning by recommending Alpha as a possible next step for you if you're interested. And as we've heard, the talks on Alpha touch on all the big questions of life. 
Hey, if you were to spend the whole of, let's imagine you uh, went to every single night. I think we heard it was eight weeks. Let's imagine you went to all eight weeks of the course. In total, that would amount to about 20 hours of your life. You would spend 20 hours of your life looking at the claims of the most famous man who has ever lived, looking at the claims of the person who's had the biggest impact upon the history of our world, over and above every other person who's ever lived. I think if we were to live for 70, 80, or 90 years, probably everyone in this room could agree that across an 80-year life, spending 20 hours of that 80-year life looking at the claims of the most famous man who's ever lived, the person who's had the biggest impact on the history of the world, we could all agree probably those 20 hours would be time well spent irrespective of what conclusion we came to about Christ and his claims. But this morning as I finish, as I sit down, I'm not asking you to come on the whole of the Alpha course. But I am asking you as I sit down whether you would consider just coming for week one. Coming for week one. Why don't you come for week one? Because you could try Alpha. And then after that first week, if you decide, do you know what? Uh, I won't be coming back next week. Thanks very much. Well, that's only one evening of your life. But I'm bound to say that there really are thousands of people. Thousands of people who would say that the decision to try Alpha turned out to be the best decision they've ever made. And here's the thing. Julia and I, my wife and I, we personally know well over 100 people who could stand here this morning on this stage and say, looking back on the whole of my life, I would say probably the best decision that I ever made was the decision to come to week one of Alpha. <laughs> and so I want to encourage you right now while everyone is reaching forward to the back of the chair in front of them where there is one of these comment cards and there's a tiny little pen, in a second, everyone in this room is going to be writing a comment, okay? What did you think of this morning's Alpha launch? This morning, we've launched our Alpha course on a Sunday. What did you think of it? Give us your genuine feedback because, hey, next January, we could do something like this again. How could we do it better? What did you like? What didn't you like? While everyone's writing something, there could be one person either in the row behind you, in the row in front of you, and actually they want to tick one of those two alpha boxes. But if everybody writes something, they won't be the only one reaching for a tiny biro and writing something. Make it easy for them. We genuinely value your feedback. We'll read every comment. But if everyone writes a comment, if you're here this morning and you know what, you think you might like to try alpha, you can tick one of those two boxes, but you won't be the only one reaching for a pen. Everyone will be writing something. So we'll do this for 60 seconds. If you are ticking for one of those two boxes, please tell us who you are. Please tell us how we can get in contact with you. We'd love to encourage you. Uh, the guys are just going to play quietly in the background now for 60 seconds. And then in 60 seconds, we'll have finished writing. We'll be standing up. We'll be singing. So please leave us your comments. Um, find that pen. Find that little biro thing in me, Bob. Leave us a comment. And if you're ticking one of those boxes... Please tell us your name and tell us how we can get in contact with you. We'd love to encourage you. God bless you.